Welcome to Grief and Gratitude, a podcast by Coffee and Grief. I'm Maria, and this is my mom, Annie. We're a mom-daughter team who talk about grief. We started this podcast to learn more about grief and to be part of the conversation in normalizing grief. We like to say that grief is transformative. You don't need to stay stuck in the hard parts. Grief is one of life's certainties. It allows us to connect to each other's humanity. If you're here in the early stages of grief, we're here to say it's hard. We're here to say be kind to yourself and thank yourself for showing up, for being curious about what grief can look like in its wholeness. This is not a prescription and we're not experts in your grief. We're just offering a little bit of hope. My biggest grief was being widowed when I was 28 and pregnant with Maria's older brother. Everything in my world changed, eventually for the good. Eventually there was Scott, my fabulous husband, then Maria, our beautiful daughter. I like to say that grief is the source of my superpowers. It's where I learned to not take time for granted. It's where I learned compassion and love in a bigger, deeper way. It's where I learned to be a beauty seeker, a joy seeker. And also I'm a writer. I really wrote my way through my grief. And from all that experience, I'm delighted to tell you that I now have a book that's going to be in the world. Its publication date is September 4th. The title is The Fifth Chamber, as in if you had a fifth chamber in your heart, what would it hold? It's currently available for pre-order through Amazon and Barnes and Noble and wherever you buy your books at any local bookstore. For me, I was raised by my mom here who was grieving. Grief was very normalized in our home. It's something we talked about often. One of the things I've realized for the past few years is when we don't share our griefs, they become secrets and tear people up. But in sharing them, we can connect to each other. There's only so many different grief stories and talking about them and sharing them, it's really been nice to connect with each other on a personal level. For me, the past few years, I've lost multiple people in my life, including two grandparents and a few horses and cats. I feel many deaths in my life have been major benchmarks in how I view the world. So as we like to say on these podcasts, Grab your coffee or whatever's in your cup, and let's talk. Today, we are delighted to welcome Kelly Thompson. Kelly will be reading a piece that she wrote, and then we'll be in conversation with her. Kelly Thompson has been published in Bomb, Larb, Still the Journal, Mountain Bluebird, Guernica, Brevity, Proximity, the Rumpus, and other literary journals. She is also a curator and editor for the Voices on Addiction column at The Rumpus. She lives in the sunlight of the spirit in Denver, Colorado. You can find her on Instagram at Kelly Blog or Twitter at Starry Night, S-T-A-R-E-E-N-I-T-E. Please welcome Kelly. I'm thrilled to be here and honored. I love your program and I'm so excited that it's now in a podcast version and can reach even more people. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. What are you what are what are you going to be reading with for us today? 
Um, this is a piece that's it's an excerpt from a longer uh, work in progress. So it's sort of an in progress kind of thing that I worked with to see what I could do. So it's sort of a work in progress. So I hope everybody's okay with that. Perfect. Thank you. Sunday's Child. My water broke at McDonald's off East Colfax in Denver, <clears throat> in the state where my parents met and settled. I was three months past 16, wearing white jeans tied at the belly with shoelace. The liquid poured from me, and I thought that odd. I felt no urgency to pee. I called my mother. Her voice went up three registers, and she told me to stay put. She and my father were driving to pick me up. It means you're having the baby, she said. We have to go to the hospital. I was numb to my body below the neck. I told her how to find me and went out into the August heat to wait. The heat was an actual entity. Waves of it shimmered in the hot air. Nearby was a major highway, though it was Saturday and the traffic was not so bad. Still, the smell of tar and exhaust triggered instant nausea. August was traditionally the hottest month of the year, but it was brutal that year, 1971. The sky was paler than usual. I sipped a Coke to ward off the heat and dizziness and looked westward, a murmuration of starlings. They pulsed against the Rocky Mountains and in the distance, appearing and disappearing. I wanted to possess their magic. As unconcerned as I was, my girlfriend expressed irritation. What's the big deal? Why do your parents have to pick you up? She asked. Are you having the baby? I wasn't. Not yet. Induced because my water had broken, labor would be intensive. The birth was virginal. I had not been born yet. Colorado General was on the east side of town, not far from where my parents picked me up on East Colfax in the McDonald's. Its emergency room doors yawned open to the sea of putrid green hospitals favored back then, that and indistinct linoleum floors. My mother must have called ahead because a wheelchair is waiting, and soon I am in a rectangular room I remember as in shadow, an IV inserted in my arm. My cervix, they say, is barely dilated. It will be a long night and then a day before wires are hooked up to the baby's head, at last apparent. An injection to start the labor brings contractions, intense and violent. I decide to leave. I've changed my mind, I say, my hair tangled at my neck, tugging as I rise. But I am held back, shushed. There is a nurse who soothes me down. Thick cotton envelops me as the drugs take effect. From this vantage point, I see the girl at the forest edge. Primordial trees, invisible and fallen, surround her women before her. The forest needs nothing more than someone to look, to pay attention. The forest breathes. The girl is me. The water is the place. The girl slips in. Women she comes from, ancient, unheard, and fallen. Trees buried in seabed, moss-wrapped, and barnacle-sheathed. Underwater, she can breathe. The baby would be born not breathing, given away before she was born. I had been meant to ride a train to Oregon, give birth there. Arrangements were made, but the child came prematurely. 
Too early, the prospective adopters decide, or was it fate? The baby would come hurtling through scattered stars, an imperiled comet curled in the form of a spiral hitting the atmosphere and bursting into flame through the portal of a girl to lie stunned and still. Five minutes, they said. Five minutes before the child gulped air, before gills opened, the spirit decided, animated her form and accepted the assignment. She would be my daughter. Whisked away, incubated, I, a child myself, left supine, unconscious on the table. Cold steel, bright lights, someone pushing and tugging on my stomach. Where is my baby? I was confused. You had a girl, the intern said, a daughter. How many hours before I saw her? She was in an incubator with tubes and oxygen, her wild heart visibly beating in the shell of the tiny cave of her chest. I reached in, my fingers touching the peach fuzz soft of her, her fingers holding on, grabbing mine, and the great unwritten story began. You, you are my mama, the touch of skin like home. You, you are my daughter. Again, there is no plot here. Action without meaning is not story, nothing more than thin tentacles. Tentacles, tendrils, and no trellis to climb. Suddenly nothing happened. I was waiting for my real life to begin. Listen, there is music because that is what and how I hear. This is not survival, but the thing itself in service to survival. The story will never line up, a trace of a moving point, linear. There is no such thing. There is no before or after. This is what it always was, a murmur, a power, that pause before the in-breath. I learned to conjure at my grandmother Ollie's feet for the first eight years of my life, listen to her ballads, my father's mother. Words are what I make of the music and the blood inside me. It flows from the same place. I didn't know then that story was what she gave me. In the words of Adrian Rich, transitory, fragmented perhaps, but original and crucial, the story of mother and daughterhood. Grandma sang, family surrounded us, and I was her most rapt admirer. She played the Kentucky ballad she'd learned in youth. The guitar and her voice were one. My heart, too, became her instrument, her plaintive twang, an entreaty, her words, incantation. It's an oral tradition. This story is meant to be spoken. The opening notes to the ballad, put my little shoes away, transported me. Now come and bathe my forehead, mother, for I am growing very weak, she sang. I became the characters, first the child growing weak then the soothing mother. All the story songs painted possibilities, hinted at what might come, promised fate. This is your lot in life, her eyes said, just as I had one, so will you. I had agreed to give the baby up for adoption, give away, surrender. I remember sitting on the concrete front porch of our clean middle-class rectangle house in the suburbs at the corner of Leonard Lane and Linda Sue. My mother opens the aluminum screen door and steps through. There's a family in Oregon. Would I like to? It's up to me, she says. Did she say the word? 
relinquish, they called it then. If we discussed it any further, I have no recollection. Okay, I agreed, my 16-year-old stomach a bump, the baby a flutter inside me. The adoptive family was in my parents' church but lived in Oregon, and we did not personally know them. I had a train ticket to go early and stay with the doctor in the church. They would take my baby. It had all sounded fine in theory, like a fairy tale. It still feels like one because it never happened. She came early. I had never been on a train. There had been complications at birth. She didn't breathe. Then she did. They gave me too much sedation and I passed out at a crucial moment. My body went limp. Everything stopped. I have no idea how they got her out. I remember the nurse who was mean to me before we even went to the delivery room, how she said, you wanted this baby, now you have her. On the edge of 17, Stevie Nicks sang a decade later. Before the birth, the last thing I remember was pulling the nurse's surgical hat off, the IV out of my arm, blood spurting. I had spent the entire Saturday night in labor my daughter would be born on Sunday, full of grace. Oh, thank you, Kelly. That's so beautiful. You're so, welcome. Oh, that's just so beautiful. So first I have to ask, I know you're working on a book. Is this part of your book? It is, but you never know. I, you know that, that is very goes. true. <laughs> It's definitely in process and <clears throat> some things will come out, some things will stay in. Absolutely. That is the way it works. Well, I'm just so touched that you read this um, for lots of reasons. And one, you know, uh, traditionally people think of grief. When we hear grief, we think of the loss of a beloved. We think of a death. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we talk about a lot is there are so many types of grief. And this is its own kind of grief that is that is not what we traditionally think of. Yeah, it's it's what they call disenfranchised grief. Okay, can you say more about that? <laughs> um, sure. Um, it's um, the definition of that is uh, grief that persons experience when they incur a loss that is not or cannot be openly acknowledged, socially sanctioned, or publicly publicly mourned. So, um, yeah, so loss, um, disenfranchised grief, you know, a, another um, example of it would be adoption, for example, giving up a child for adoption um, is not something you're allowed to really grieve. Um, it's disen also disenfranchised, you know, loss of innocence, loss of youth, loss of different futures, um, all of those things come into play. So, yeah, I think, you know, I would, I would say my story includes a lot of disenfranchised grief. Well, and that's part of why we're so glad to have you at the microphone, right? Cause that is, that's so what we're here for that, um, to talk about the griefs that we don't talk about, uh, to talk about the ones we do talk about, but also the ones that we don't talk about. Thank you. I think that's beautiful. And, and I hope that, you know, for me, yeah, 
it's it's hard to carry those kinds of things alone, you know, and not to have them acknowledged or recognized and to be afraid. And and there's a lot of shame and stigma, you know, with various kinds of disenfranchised grief. But it could even be as simple as a deep grief over a pet that people deny as being a legitimate loss. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, they might minimize and discount or sort of not, you know, allow that kind of grieving or recognize it. Another thing is children of, of, uh, you know, parents of of addicts, of children with uh, alcohol disorder or substance abuse issues. Um, Nobody comes over with casseroles, you know, and that's an incredibly complicated and powerful grief also that I've that I've actually experienced but but that's another story and another essay okay well yeah and to read my book right well we'll have to read the book and you know it's something that you do as an editor at the rumpus right and Mm -hmm. so you are giving more voice to those stories and they're really important so that people don't feel as alone yeah, the the intention is to break the stigma by telling the stories openly and publicly in a place that is, you know, visited by a diversity of people and um, a mainstream literary magazine providing space for that is really powerful and healing. Yeah. I hope anyway, <laughs> it seems to I- be. <laughs> it seems to be, I mean, it's going strong and people follow it. And um, I just, I think it's so important. It's one of the ways that I am grateful. Um, there's more places to have these conversations than there used to be. Yeah. So yes. We're making some progress a little bit. We are. Yeah. We are making huge progress. And I don't know if the generations that come after mine, which is baby boomer, um, are you generation X or are you? Um, Ann, Annie, I'm, I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the young end of being a boomer. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, let's just, you know, say that that is something that we paved the way for. So, um, we can feel really good about that legacy and, and the way that it's exploding and opening up and becoming something that we can openly acknowledge and talk about and, um, reach out for help for and get support for more and more and more is just so incredibly beautiful. And that's, you know, all that all has to do with, you know, grief, uh, disenfranchised grief. Um, Think of all the incredible, um, the layers transgenerational and how deep and profound that disenfranchised transgenerational grief is that we can now openly grieve, at least we're beginning to anyway. Well, we're starting to, and it's it's a beautiful thing, right? Because it is. Um, holding it in is not a way to heal. No, that, yeah. Did you find, I don't know, find with your story that there was like a turning point later in your life that you were able to share more or was there something that, happened down the road that made you want to have these conversations that you would like to share with us? Um, 
it really, I would say it took, it was, it took a lifetime <laughs> for that turning point to come a lifetime of work and, um, awareness and growing, you know, awareness and work on myself and, um, you know, the support of a community of other people with the same issues. Um, but it really, it really has taken a lifetime. And I would say in the last 10 years, I, let's say I came out of the closet. <clears throat> and part of that, and, and a big part of that is being a writer and um, authenticity and, and needing to be true to myself. And that is so crucial to all of us, regardless of what it is that we're dealing with. And so, yeah, so it was like, here I am, here I am. And I'm just not, I'm just not compartmentalizing uh, my life anymore. Yeah, that's, that's definitely something we've seen a lot with this for the past few years is that in sharing our true stories, there's a lot of connection instead of just compartmentalizing it and shoveling it down. So, awesome. Is there anything you'd like to say to your younger self? Oh, wow. Yes. This is what I would say. There's nothing wrong with you and there never was. That's so powerful. Yeah. And, you know, the only thing that that is wrong with us is what we believe is wrong with us. So <clears throat> that's a beautiful that's those are beautiful words to tell your younger self. All our younger selves can hear that. So thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Yeah. Do you is there um, what might you say to somebody else who's grieving a similar grief, a different grief? Or is there, or what, what kind of kindness do you share with others? Um, I think for me, I try to bear witness to grief and that's, that's uh, what my role sort of is. I think I'm trying to do that with the column voices on addiction and in my life and in my relationships and interactions with others in my writing too, is to bear witness to grief. And the beautiful thing about grief that I would add is that, well, what I would say is that grieving is good, is a good thing. And that authentically grieving is the anecdote to trauma. And we have a lot of grieving, you know, allowing that grief is so important and it's okay. And that's what I've learned in my experience. And it's, you know, I think, you know, life is <clears throat> full of grief. Obviously we have losses every day. You know, there's a book, I think of an old book, uh, Necessary Losses by Judith Bjorst, uh, I think. I think her name is yeah, yeah. I remember that I, what I, what I remember about it is necessary losses because a lot of our losses are necessary like you know moving from one stage of life to the next moving out of high school to college um developmentally and then there are other losses that are certainly not necessary that are random and brutal and 
hard and difficult. They're all hard, but <clears throat> I, loss is just such a big part of life. And if we can just, you know, allow it and be with it, that's what I try to do is be present for other people's stories when I can, if they tell me. <laughs> well, that, that's the most beautiful thing though, right? It's just to be with, not to try to fix. Yeah. Yeah. Just to bear witness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, we are fond of saying like, it's one of the most beautiful things you can do is to, is to witness somebody else's grief and just sit with it. Yeah. And you got, you probably both learned that from your own grief Absolutely. and what you needed, right? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. You, I feel like I had this moment of like, our, our work is done here from what you just said, <laughs> right? Like that was, you hit <clears throat> on so many, you made so many beautiful points that I hope people listening really can take some comfort in and and know that walking through grief is, is part of life. And yes, it's super hard and it's necessary. Um, and you find, you, you know, you find a group of people around you who can help you walk through it, who can bear witness. Um, and that, that's how we continue to grow and evolve as humans. Yeah. I think there's a little bit of the solitary to it too. You know, there's a piece of it that nobody can do for for us or even with us, maybe. But that doesn't mean that we're alone. You know what helps me? You just made me think of it. it a friend of mine lost a daughter, a child, not too long ago. And we were talking and um, we were talking about all of the many, many, many mothers all over the world who have lost a child. And so we're never alone in our grief. And at the same time, we, there's a piece that, that we, nobody can, can carry for us or fix or, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's that paradox because some of it is lonely and some of it you do just have to walk through yourself. But at the same time, we're not alone. Right. Um, and, and even people's stories can be similar or very different, but there is, there is that common thread that I just, I think it's part of our humanity. So is there anything else you'd like to share as we've been talking that came to you or? Mm. No, I just think that, you know, I'm just really grateful for the work that you're doing here and the space that you've created and are creating for grief because it is the antidote to trauma. And um, so many of us get stuck. I know I, I did um, in, in that trauma and, and it's, it's really important and you normalize it and we get to hear all the different stories um, on coffee and grief or with coffee and grief. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming today and sharing your story with us. Yeah, You're welcome. We really, 
we really appreciate having you and hearing your beautiful writing and having this conversation. Mm -hmm. These conversations really matter. And the more we have them, the more our hope is the more we have them here, the more people will have them in their own homes and with their own in their own ways, along with joining us. We love having people join us at Coffee Talk. So if you would like to reach out to us, you can connect with us on Facebook at Coffee and Grief or email us at coffeeandgrief at gmail.com. If there's something you'd like us to talk about, please let us know via email or Facebook's good too. And we, all, we like to always close with saying, be good to yourself, be kind to your hearts, drink plenty of water, do something nice for yourself. And if you have the bandwidth, do something nice for someone else. Please come back. We love you. Thank you for love a beautiful you. conversation, Kelly. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.